0: Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I started Self Work four years ago in order to expand the walls of my practice to reach those who might already be interested in therapy or psychological and emotional issues. To those of you who've just been diagnosed with something you want to understand more like depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or PTSD or you're having a relationship problem that you'd like another perspective on perhaps. But also to those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist but are just curious enough to listen in to self-work. Today I'm going to talk about suicide. September is suicide prevention awareness month and I want to debunk what are commonly believed myths concerning it. So obviously first I want to give you an international list from Wikipedia that was sent to me by one of my listeners from Germany. It's a list of all the suicide services in all the countries and it will be prominent in your show notes. It helps to reach out, it helps to talk, and that's been proven over and over. So if you need someone, please click that link. I've used several different resources in my research. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in the United States, an article by Magellan Health, which is a health management organization, and also an NPR article, that's National Public Radio, geared toward educating parents and the educators both about teen and child suicide. I also listened into a conversation on the podcast One Broken Mom. The host is Amei Quiriconi, and she gave some stats that were more than attention-getting about suicide. They're actually frightening when you consider what they mean. For example, in the United States, if the people in one year who'd attempted a suicide had been what's called sort of weirdly successful, that would be 1.4 million attempts. And suicide would vastly overwhelm cardiac arrest as the leading cause of death here. Another sobering fact, for years now, there have been many more suicides worldwide than there are homicides or war casualties. So as you can see, suicide surrounds us. But one of the myths is that if you talk about it, you increase the chance of others doing it, and that's simply not true. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The listener email for today is from someone who couldn't find grief on the feeling wheel that I discussed in the Suck It Up episode, which was really an episode on not sucking it up. She's overwhelmed by grief and doesn't know how to get through it, so I'll try to answer her question. So in this episode, once again sponsored by BetterHelp, please travel with me as we begin to challenge and debunk the myths about suicide. I quoted some startling statistics in the intro for this episode, yet it's well recognized in the mental health community that suicide has not so suddenly become much more commonplace, and this pandemic is making it worse. The nation's suicide rate reached historic highs prior to the COVID 19 pandemic, with rates at the highest levels since World War II. Economic and social pressures this year have heightened those risks. Suicide mortality rates that were rising over the past two decades, combined with the current pandemic, are a perfect storm, as an article said in JAMA, or the Journal of the American Medical Association. Factors including, again, economic stress, social isolation, reduced access to religious services overall, national anxiety, increased firearm sales here in the United States, and increases in healthcare provider suicides. So I decided it was a good time to talk about it. And for those of you who've been listening to self-work for a while now, you know that I'm very concerned with the rising rates of perfectionism, with what's called socially prescribed perfectionism being highly correlated with suicidal ideation, behavior, and even death. One Norwegian study looked into how perfectionism could have developed in men who died by suicide, and they found three themes. Exposure to exceedingly high expectations, that's what's called that socially prescribed perfectionism, with little experience of parental warmth. Second, a diminished ability to cope with failure and weaknesses. And three, an abiding fear of emotional rejection. Another study I found that was done in 2018 by a Dr. Shanaz found that perfectionism is more correlated with thinking of suicide than with attempting it. So the research sometimes disagrees with itself, which is common. But the thing to me that's vital to remember, at this point, we all know someone who's died by suicide, and those people were not mentally ill. In fact, some looked quite successful and happy. So today, we're going to talk about 12 myths about suicide. You might even ask, though, why they're so important to challenge, because these myths can keep any of us from realizing that suicide might be a likely outcome, and we'll ask the right questions Or you realize that even you yourself could become despairing enough to think about it and to realize that you need to ask for help. But before we get to that, let's hear this special offer from BetterHelp. When I was approached by BetterHelp now several months ago, COVID hadn't emerged. And I'd maybe conducted a handful of telehealth sessions, mostly when someone was sick. And couldn't make it into the office now five months later I'm even more of a believer in telehealth it took some getting used to but actually clients sometimes seem more relaxed it fits better into their schedule and although many have told me they miss seeing me in person it's still been a very fulfilling relationship I've even started new patients and they've told me they had positive experiences so we've never actually met in person BetterHelp is rated the number one online therapy service that's available to you wherever you live. Confidential and highly personalized, it's much less expensive than normal talk therapy. You can text, have video chats, or just talk on the phone. You outline what you're looking for and BetterHelp suggests several therapist options for you. If you don't seem to find a way to connect with one, they'll ask you more about what you're looking for and then suggest others. I, of course, tried it out before I was going to recommend it to you, and the two therapists I had sessions with listened well and made great suggestions for me, and one said, actually, I might make myself. I talked about my own panic disorder and a very scary situation I'd been through, and they were caring and thoughtful, and I was amazed at how easy it was to get in touch with them to make time changes, for example. Although BetterHelp can't be there in emergencies, nor could any online provider, they have all kinds of information about what you can do in that special circumstance. And today, BetterHelp has a great savings offer for you. If you use the link trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork, again, that's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork, you can enjoy a 10% discount on your first month of sessions. After five months of seeing how people relate to telehealth, I'd highly recommend it. If self-work has helped you, maybe better help can give you an even more personal experience with therapy. Okay, so let's dive into these 12 myths. First from NAMI, suicide only affects individuals with a mental health condition. That's the myth. Research has found that 46% of people who die by suicide had a known mental health condition. But many individuals with a mental illness are not affected by suicidal thoughts. And not all people who attempt or die by suicide have mental illness. That's just not true. All kinds of issues, relationship problems and other life stressors, including criminal legal matters, persecution, eviction or loss from a home, death of a loved one... A devastating or debilitating illness, trauma, sexual abuse, rejection, or recent or impending crises are also associated with suicidal thoughts and attempts. So that's not mental illness. That's trauma. And that's why it's so important for you to call it trauma, to recognize that all those things are difficult. And sometimes suicide becomes an option. Here's the second myth. Once an individual is suicidal, he or she will always remain suicidal. There's actually some debate about this. It is certainly a fact that active suicidal ideation or having thoughts about wanting to hurt yourself, those thoughts are often short-term and very situation-specific. Sometimes people think of suicide as an attempt to control deep, painful emotions and thoughts that an individual is experiencing. But once these thoughts go away or dissipate, So will the suicidal ideation. They can return, but they're not permanent. But it's also a myth that if a person attempts suicide and survives, that they'll never make a further attempt. Actually, a suicidal attempt is regarded as an indicator that future attempts could occur. And it is likely that the level of danger will increase with each further suicide attempt. So you can hear the contradiction Some people will again experience suicidal ideation once or twice in their lives, and it never returns. Other people who may have more chronic mental illnesses or more chronic situations that are traumatic, it can be an indicator that further suicide attempts may occur. Here's number four. Most suicides happen suddenly without warning. Now, impulsivity is one of the major causes of suicide, but it's not the cause of all of them. There are warning signs, verbal, behavioral warning signs that precede most suicides. So we want to go over the classic warning signs. Somebody will say things like, I wish I wasn't here or nothing matters. They may increase their alcohol or drug use, become more aggressive or withdraw, have dramatic mood swings, do other reckless things, collect and save pills or buy a weapon, give away possessions, actually saying goodbye. And obviously, they're not going to come out and say, hey, I'm never going to see you again because I'm going to kill myself. But they do, in essence, make sure they touch everyone's lives that they know. So what are the risks of suicide? Obviously, a family history, substance abuse, intoxication, access to firearms, a serious or chronic medical illness, your gender, more women than men attempt suicide, but men are nearly four times more likely to die. That's because they use more potent means. Other risk factors are a history of trauma or abuse, prolonged stress, and a recent tragedy or loss. And again, I would add the perfect-looking life to that list because underneath that is loneliness and complete despair. The fifth myth, that's hard to say, fifth myth. (laughs) People who die by suicide are selfish and take the easy way out. Typically, people do not die by suicide because they don't want to live. They die by suicide because they want to end their suffering. John Moe talked about this in the recent conversation I had with him about his book, The Hilarious World of Depression. Somehow or another, the irrationality of suicide tells people that their pain will be over. Well, they will be over. And certainly, suicidality has nothing to do with selfishness. Depression is a disease inherently that is self-oriented. You find it very difficult to think about anything but what's on your own mind. But that is part of the illness, not a character trait. Here's number six. Talking about suicide will lead to and encourage suicide. And people believe, oh, I better not talk about suicide. If I ask about it, maybe they'll consider it. The actual fact is that there's a stigma still associated with suicide, and as a result, many people are afraid to speak about it. But actually talking about it not only reduces the stigma, but allows individuals to seek help, rethink their opinions, and share their story with others. Again, John Moe was talking about the barriers that try to prevent people from jumping off bridges. And what he said was, you know, sometimes you just need that one thought of someone put this barrier here so I wouldn't do this. And sometimes that's the only thing that's needed for someone to turn around and walk off that bridge. If you haven't listened to that interview, he's a fascinating guy. Here's the seventh myth. Suicide happens more often during the holidays, such as Christmas or Thanksgiving, and actually that's not true at all. Suicide rates are lowest in December, and then they peak during the spring. Number eight, if a person is determined to die by suicide, nothing will stop them. And again, we sort of talk about those bridge barriers. Suicides can be prevented. Most people who are even thinking about suicide, feel very ambivalent and are torn between the desire to live and the desire to die. They just want the emotional pain to stop, and they can see no other way out. That's how you can help. The ninth myth, teens are the greatest risk to commit suicide. Actually, no. Adults are more likely to take their own life. A particularly high risk are adults between the ages of 45 and 54, who had a suicide rate of almost 20 deaths per 100,000 people, compared with about 19 per 100,000 in people over 85 and 13 per 100,000 in the general population. Still, teenagers remain a high-risk group. The percentage of emergency room visits related to suicidal thoughts or attempts among children and teens more than doubled between 2008 and 2015. And that is frightening. So let's turn to the NPR article and the information they gave there about teens and young adults having suicidal ideation. We've already sort of talked about this, but especially with teens, people believe that their suicides always happen in an impulsive moment. That's not true. People contemplate, think about it, imagine it, fantasize about it, write suicide notes, post things on the web. After many days or weeks of this kind of thing, then perhaps they make an attempt or a fatal attempt. And actually, there's a major theory in the mental health field that says that no suicides are impulsive, that there's always a history if you dig deep enough. But the idea that suicide just comes out of the blue is really quite rare. Some kids are not going to communicate their intent, but most will let their friends know, drop hints, or even write essays. So they're not crying wolf. It's something to take very, very seriously. I found this interesting. This is number 11. Young children ages 5 through 12 cannot be suicidal. That's the myth. Actually, young children do take their lives. It is rare, very rare. But in the United States, each year, for example, about 30 to 35 children under the age of 12 take their own lives. So it's hard for a lot of us to imagine that a child that young at five or six or seven could actually even know what it means to say, I want to hurt myself or I want to kill myself. But the authors of this NPR article are saying, yes, they can intend it. And sometimes they do take their own lives, even though the suicide prevention literature sort of begins at age 12 or 14. We don't want to talk about it. It's so frightening. It's hard to wrap our minds around it. And the 12th myth that they talked about in this NPR article was when there's been a suicide, having a big school assembly seems like a good idea. And actually, this is not what you want to do. You want to have conversations in smaller groups because there is such a thing as copycat suicide, especially with teenagers. We've already mentioned that a risk factor for suicide is if you have suicide in your family. It's almost like it gives mental permission to people who come along in the younger generations. Teenagers most want to be like other teenagers, right? So you do worry so much more about copycat or modeling kinds of events. So I hope this has been helpful to you. I know this is not a fun topic to talk about, but the more we know, the more we know in reality, the more we can help each other and ourselves. We can help to prevent suicide. The listener email today is from someone who is surrounded and overwhelmed by grief and doesn't really know what to do about it. Let's hear her story. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I love listening to your podcast. It has helped me a lot during some tough times I've been through. And I was just listening to your podcast, the Suck It Up episode, and I wanted to try the feelings wheel. But to my surprise, I couldn't find grief from the veil. I really wanted to measure my grief and understand it because I've been feeling a lot of it and I feel like I'm experiencing it for the first time in my life. It takes so much space and so much emotion. I just hope that you can help me to understand it. Thank you. This listener seems to be opening herself to feelings of grief, perhaps for the first time. And if that's so, it certainly can be overwhelming. I looked at the link for the feelings wheel in episode 195 that she mentioned, and grief is on there as an offshoot of sadness. Sadness, then despair, then grief and feeling powerless. Grief is usually associated with loss of some kind. It could be loss that's happened recently, or you can find grief that's been stored away for years and may emerge as you begin to recognize the impact of trauma or loss or neglect on your life. I've used this analogy before, but I'll use it here again. Imagine that you know nothing of the ocean. You don't know it ever existed. You've never seen it or heard about it. And the powers that be lifted you up on a night with no starlight or moonlight and put you at the edge of the ocean at high tide. And again, you can't see. The waves would nearly cause you to fall, or maybe they do. Maybe you stumble and fall. You'd have to instinctively try to find ways not to be pulled into the undertow, literally fighting for your life. Wave after wave would hit you. And perhaps even one rogue wave would be stronger than all the other ones prior to it, which would make no sense at all. You would have no way to know what was happening. Think about what your responses might be. You might want to give in and let the waves take you out. Basically, you'd want to give up. You might fight each wave and be angry. You might try to figure out how to maintain your balance and kind of keep your cool, trying to engage your mind to understand. All kinds of reactions might be available to you, just like we all grieve differently, but they'd be all jumbled up. Slowly, the tide goes out very slowly with grief. It can take months or years but you basically learn to tolerate and manage it. To me, that's what grief is like. You really don't know. Some people go numb. Some people get angry. Some people get very, very deeply inconsolable. And all of those things can be very, very different responses to grief. But the only yardstick I've ever been able to come up with as far as the health of someone's grief is this. Are you moving around in it? Or are you stuck in anger and denial or avoidance of grief and sadness and fear and bitterness. If you're stuck, then that can be a problem and can certainly lead to depression and self-destructiveness. So to this listener, please try to allow yourself to move around in your grief. The woman who's written mostly about grief is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and you might look up some of her work, but she talks about the five stages of grief almost as if they're one, two, three, four, five, And again, they are all entangled with one another, and there are lots of variances of those stages. I sure hope this helps, and good luck to you. Thank you so much once again for listening to Self Work. I cannot believe we're coming up on 200 episodes. This is episode 198. And thank you so much to those of you who've left written reviews on Apple Podcasts, where so many people listen. Jess said, I definitely have perfectly hidden depression. Thank you for this podcast. Someone else says, your show gives me comfort as soon as I hear the music at the beginning of the episode till the end and always touch my personal questions. Someone else says, thanks for spending your time to make the podcast. It has helped me understand how important boundaries are. Someone else says, thank you, Margaret. You sound like someone I'd be honored to call a friend or my own therapist if you live close by. Too bad you live in Arkansas. I wish I was too, Erin. I'm always humbled and honored when people say something like that to me. And she also says, this podcast stands out to me far above the rest. That is just incredible. Thank you so very much. For those of you who've listened to Self Work for a while, I do try to make this a very different kind of podcast rather than interview after interview, which I love doing interviews and I'm going to begin to do a bit more of them. But I bring you the works of other people and then I try to help you understand what at least I understand and you may understand more than I do. So we're learning together and also a huge thank you to those of you who've left Amazon reviews for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, how to break free from the perfectionism that masks your depression I'm almost up to that 100 that I asked for <laughs> a while back. Most of you have left ratings, and that's just fine. Ratings are important, not just written reviews. So I hope for those of you that are reading the book that it is helping. I'd love to hear from you if it is. And that brings me to my email, Margaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm a little behind on those, so give me some time. I can't respond to all of them, but I do try to read them all mostly to give me ideas of what to talk about. My website is DrMargaretRutherford.com and you can subscribe there and it's a really easy way to keep up with me because you'll get a weekly newsletter with both the weekly podcast and a weekly blog post and just a hello from me and this is what's going on kind of thing. You can join me over on Instagram at Instagram.com slash DrMargaretRutherford. I actually post a good deal over there now. I really am enjoying it because you can get to know people better. And then I do have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Thank you so much for being here. Take very good care, and especially in these times, stay safe and do what you need to do to take care of your own mental health. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.